and invite you to turn in your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 1. You'll find that on page 1177 of your pew Bible if you're using that. 1177 in your pew Bible, 1 Timothy chapter 1. The Apostle Paul spent three years in the great city of Ephesus laying the foundation for the church in that place. The book of Acts tells us that his ministry there was extraordinary, even for New Testament times. During that three-year ministry, Paul did what he did in every city. He ordained local men to the office of elder and called those men to guard or watch over, or we actually get this word, the word bishop, the church. Paul knew that he could not remain in Ephesus permanently. These elders were to carry on the apostolic ministry, to build upon it and guard it when Paul was long gone. Sadly, in Ephesus, a number of elders had wandered from the apostolic foundation and were building their own movement. They didn't deny Paul's basic message or the basic elements of the gospel. In fact, they probably claimed to be improving on Paul's ministry, but in fact, they are perverting Paul's work. Now, it's just at this point of crisis when the church is being led astray from within that Paul does something very un-American, something we need to constantly remember as we study the pastorals together. In the face of bad, corrupt, male leadership in the church, Paul does not abandon his commitment to elder leadership. Rather, he sends a good leader, a good shepherd, to confront and overcome. The right response, the biblical response to corruption in the church is not to retreat to one's own home or to say, as many are saying today, let's just blow the whole thing up and ordain men and women and anyone else. Rather, God's response to bad leadership has always been the same, to raise up faithful men. If you've been abused in a church setting, if you've been the victim of unloving and unfaithful pastoral care, the best and most remedial thing you can do is to pray and seek out faithful leaders Believing that God, because he is God, has faithful men out there. As painful as it is, it shouldn't surprise us that we, in the course of our lives, may face bad elders and pastors in the church. The New Testament itself, not to mention early church history, suggests that in the course of our lifetime, it is likely that we will have to make a stand, not just in the world, but in the church itself. Now, Timothy, Timothy is God's answer to the problems in Ephesus. God does not abandon the model of eldership. Rather, he doubles down, as it were. What better way to confront, silence, and oppose the false elders in Ephesus than by sending a true heir, a true son, a true elder? And so, Timothy is sent to rally the faithful elders and silence the false ones. 
The letter of 1 Timothy that we're studying is part instruction, Paul telling his spiritual son how to approach this calling, and it is part passport, a letter for all the church to read in order to confirm and establish Timothy's authority. In God's providence, the church in Ephesus preserved this treasured letter for centuries, and the Holy Spirit quickly brought it into our New Testament. First Timothy is a timeless reminder of God, what God wants in his church. God is not after the things we may be tempted to prioritize. Rather, God wants a church filled with love, love for him and love for the brethren. But this love, this biblical love, is not the disordered desires we refer to today as love. Rather, God desires a beautiful, self-preferring, orderly love that fulfills the law in the spirit. It is this orderly love that is under attack in Ephesus. Let's read once again about that attack and God's response. I'll ask you to stand as we read verses 3 through 11. 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 11 Paul, writing his spiritual son, he says this, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, we thank you for your word, which is a light to us. We do depend on it in order to understand ourselves and our world and our future. And we do pray this morning that as we study it together, your Holy Spirit would guide us into all truth, that he would convict and encourage us just as each one needs. We pray now for attentive hearts and receptive spirits. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> First Timothy begins with Paul identifying himself as an apostle whose ordination, that's a fancy word, kids, for when hands are laid on a pastor and he becomes a pastor or an elder, his ordination comes directly from the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And so in verse 1, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, 
by command, by the command, the direct command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. We noted at the time when we studied that verse that Paul usually begins his letters by giving some hint as to where he is going. The opening verse then establishes his credentials over and against the false teachers. Paul then goes on to establish Timothy's credentials as well. And so in verse 2, he calls Timothy his true child, or you could literally interpret it, his true heir in the Lord. As Timothy faces the false elders, this letter will remind him, that is, remind Timothy, and will remind them, the false elders, that he is the true child. If tomorrow you were diagnosed with a serious condition, you would want to pick just the right doctor, the best physician available. You would do your homework. You would want to know about the training and the track record of the doctor. And so before you turn your family over to the spiritual care of a pastor or an elder, it's worth asking, where does his ordination come from? What evidence is there that he is a called man, a true heir? Paul begins by establishing a clear pattern of authority. Paul's ordination comes from Christ, and Timothy's ordination comes from the apostle and has been confirmed by his faithful service under apostolic authority. Then in verses 3 through 5, Paul sketches for us the basic difference between apostolic ministry, Bible ministry, biblical ministry, and the new ministry taking place in Ephesus. Paul and Timothy are concerned with promoting stewardship and love. Verse 5 especially provides a powerful summary of what Christian ministry is all about. Paul writes in verse 5, the aim or the telos in Greek, the end of our ministry or our charge, the purpose of our charge is love. That's the goal. And the target is from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. In other words, as we saw last time, true ministry sets love as the goal and the heart as the target. True gospel ministry aims then at real personal change that emerges from the heart, that is from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. This is what all the prophets and Jesus worked towards. They constantly condemned outward formal obedience. Instead, they pushed for real love in the heart. Jesus and the prophets were not shy. They were not shy in telling people that their sacrifices and church attendance were, in fact, an offense to God. This is the prophetic ministry Timothy has now been called into. Now, in deepest contrast, in deepest contrast to this goal, this goal of love from the heart, do you see the new corrupt ministry that is taking hold in Ephesus? Verse 4 says that some of the elders have devoted themselves to myths and genealogies, promoting speculation instead of stewardship. Verse 7 says that these men want to be known as law teachers. 
In other words, they want people to see them as stewards of deeper ministries, deeper realities. This attack, of course, was nothing new. In Galatians, in Romans, in 1 Corinthians, Paul is up against different versions of the same threat. People who claim to enhance the gospel while really undermining it. Today, many people want to make their mark as well. In fact, through all church history, distorting the law of God, especially the law of God, abusing the law of God has been a critical, a central strategy of false teaching. So today, let's think together about how the law can be abused and how it can be used lawfully with an eye to verse 8. Verse 8 reads this way. Now we know, writes Paul, we know, Timothy, you and I know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. What does it mean to use it lawfully and how is the law abused today, especially in false teaching? First of all, notice with me in the text and just in our environment as well, that the law is abused when Christians ignore it or demean it. The law of God is abused when Christians ignore it or demean it. The first way we or others can go astray is by in any way ignoring or demeaning God's law. Sadly, many Christians are guilty of this because like these false teachers, verse 7, they simply don't know what they're talking about. Paul's not shy in saying these new teachers are ignorant. And so you will meet Christians, sometimes new Christians, who will say things like, I don't have to obey the law because I'm under grace. A former member of our church uh, once told me that she was free to commit adultery because she was no longer under the law but under grace. She went on to condemn our elders as whitewashed tombs because we sought to apply the letter of the law in demanding, in demanding that she desist from her open adultery. This kind of thinking, unfortunately, is rampant in the church today. But notice that Paul affirms God's law as utterly good if it is used properly. And in just a moment, he will give us an example of how to use it properly, how to use it lawfully. But before we get there, let's just underline this again. God's revelation to Moses... What is called the Torah, or law, is fully inspired. It is not a mistake. The Old Testament is not a mistake that the New Testament then corrects. Yes, the revelation given in the Old Testament is inferior to the fullness that has come in Christ. However, inferior does not mean bad or faulty or wrong. It simply means, in the word of the book of Hebrews that we live under a new and better covenant with a new and better priesthood. Here's how Paul summed it up in Romans chapter 7. He says this, So the law, he says, is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, the law being good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. 
For we know, Paul writes again, Romans 7, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. Notice what Paul is saying. The problem is not with God's revelation or with God's Torah. The problem is with us. The commandment, he says, is holy, it is righteous, it is spiritual, and it is good. More to our point today, notice what Paul does in verses 9 through 11. First, in verses 9 through 10, he summarizes the Ten Commandments. Did you pick up on that? Look again with me at verse 9. Paul writes, Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Now, if you know your Ten Commandments by heart, and I hope, I hope that you do, can you recognize the pattern Paul is following in those verses? He begins with those who are profane and unholy. That is really a summary of the first four commandments, isn't it? We are not to profane God's name, third commandment. We're not to profane the Sabbath day, fourth commandment. And then beginning with the fifth commandment, he gets very specific. Those who strike their parents, there's the fifth commandment. Those who murder, he does next, that's the sixth commandment. Those who are sexually immoral, seventh commandment. Those who enslave, that's to steal, that's the highest level of stealing, eighth commandment. And those who lie or perjure, ninth commandment. Do you see? This isn't just a random list. He is showing Timothy and us how the law is used properly. And it isn't just here in this one verse or these verses. In his letter to this church, the letter to the Ephesians, the Ephesians, book of Ephesians, Paul uses chapter 5 of that letter to once again take out the Ten Commandments and apply them to the life of the church. He calls on them to flee sexual immorality, to speak the truth to one another, and to submit to parents and other authorities. To top it all off and to remove all doubt from our minds, he makes this remarkable statement in verse, seven, uh, verse 11. All of this, verse 11, he says, is in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. God's moral law, as it is summarized in the Ten Commandments, is, verse 11, fully in accordance with, fully in harmony with the gospel of the glory of God with which Paul has been entrusted. Ignoring then or demeaning the moral law of God, as it's contained in the Ten Commandments especially, is a huge mistake for Christians. Pastors or elders who refuse to talk about the law are doing their, their congregation and themselves a huge disservice. Pastors who preach a brand of grace that denies the law or even attacks it are also corrupting ministry. On the other hand, whenever we do ministry, we should do it with an acknowledgement that God's moral law is right, that we need it, 
and that we daily fail to live it out. What we need, what I need, is humble, repentant, Christ-centered teaching of the law. That will be invaluable and essential to the instruction of the church. So the first way we can unlawfully preach the law is to ignore it or to demean it. But second of all, notice the law is also abused, unlawfully taught, when we fail to preach it in some way to the world. It's abused by Christians when we ignore it or demean it, but the law is also abused when we fail to preach it to the world around us. Those of you who are familiar with the writings of Calvin and Luther will recognize throughout this sermon that I'm following the threefold use of the law as it was laid down in Luther's commentary on Galatians in the Institutes of Calvin and in the Westminster Larger Catechism, especially questions 95 through 97. In all those sources, and more importantly, in the scriptures, the law functions first to instruct the believer, but also to convict the unbeliever. And notice that is exactly Paul's main point in our passage. This is what lies behind the difficult and somewhat enigmatic saying we have in verse 9. Paul writes in verse 9, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedience. Paul is not denying our first point. He is not saying that the law has no purpose for the believer. He uses it all the time in his letters with believers. The whole point of the gospel, the whole point of the New Testament contradicts that interpretation. After all, verse 11, the law is in accordance, we saw, with the gospel. It is in line with the gospel. Paul's point here is that the false teachers are caught up in myths and genealogies. The law has become for them a plaything, a scavenger hunt. Instead, Paul speaks rather harshly here. The law is meant to get the attention of the lawless person. That's why Paul uses the most outrageous examples of law-breaking. So notice that it isn't just dishonoring your parents, but beating your parents that he mentions. It's not just being sexually immoral. It's practicing homosexuality. All sexual sin is wrong, but Paul in the whole of Scripture views homosexuality and bestiality as taking it even further. A fuller rejection of God's design, a greater level of disorder, to use the words of the Roman Catholic Catechism. The same with stealing, right? Paul mentions not just stealing a loaf of bread, but stealing and selling human beings. The Bible actually prescribes the death penalty for human trafficking. So the law is abused when we fail to preach it to the world in some way. Now, this must be done appropriately and humbly. You don't go out there screaming and being self-righteous. You recognize that you yourself are a sinner and under the condemnation of the law. But the world does need the law as a restraining force, if nothing more. The world needs to know that God will judge these activities. No one may in this life catch you, but be assured that God will deal with the lawless. Ephesus was a very sophisticated and culturally diverse location. The people Paul is writing to were not unlike people today. 
they were very aware of all the items Paul here mentions. And so Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, he writes this reminder to the same congregation. He says to them, you may be sure of this. Here's something you can be sure of. That everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And then he says this just because he knows we'll doubt it. Let no one deceive you. They're going to try. Don't let anyone take this from you. With empty words, he says, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. We abuse the law today when we fail to lovingly and humbly tell our neighbors, our friends, our family, our children, that God's law is over them. It does not matter if they believe on him. They can say foolish things like, God is not a part of my life. They can disinvite him on social media. They can defriend him on Facebook. They are still under his law. Everyone, as I try to remind you regularly, everyone, every person in this world is already in relationship with God. Don't go up to people and offer them a relationship with God. They already have one. They need to know that they have one. They are under a relationship, a covenant of curse and wrath and judgment. And don't let anyone persuade you any differently, Paul says, with empty and vain words for these reasons law-breaking, the wrath of God is coming. Don't be deceived on the sons of disobedience. And they need the law in order to understand that, in order to restrain their hearts, and by God's grace, ultimately, to lead them to Christ. That's why we must preach the law, not just to ourselves in, in the body as a guide to Christian living, but we need our friends and our neighbors and our children to also understand that the law is over them, that they might despair and see their sin and turn to Christ. And that brings me to the third thing. The law is abused when we as Christians ignore it. The law is abused when we fail to tell others outside the church about it. And thirdly and lastly, the law is abused when we try to make it into a covenant of works. The law is abused when we try to make it into a covenant of works. Now, admittedly, that is not, I think, Paul's focus in these verses, but it is coming later in the pastoral epistles, and it is throughout the New Testament and a, a big problem today. We abuse the law when we try to make it into a covenant of works. What do I mean by that? When God made Adam and Eve... He entered into a covenant of works with them. It was simple, really. Obey, and you will be forever blessed. Disobey, and you will be cursed. Well, you know how that we went. We fell in Adam. Because we fell in him, and because we are all sinners, we cannot use the law anymore as a covenant of works. We cannot become righteous before God through the law. We cannot earn or guarantee God's mercy through the rigorous keeping of the law. Paul devoted the letters of Galatians and Romans to this point. 
In Romans, as he does here, Paul uses the moral law to get everyone lost, to get everyone in trouble. Just as he does here, he shows that the law condemns everyone for their sins. It gets them to see that they are unrighteous. The law was not a failure. It was a huge success. It did exactly what God designed it to do. It exposed our hearts and God's holiness. In a sentence, we might quote Romans 4.15. The law, Paul writes, brings wrath. I can't and I shouldn't reproduce the entire argument of Romans here. Take a deep breath. I'm not going to do it. Uh, But maybe I can put it simply in very pastoral terms. Terms that I hope will speak to your hearts and minds. The bottom line is this. We are too proud and too self-righteous to ever come willingly to Jesus as a true Savior. The law was always designed to provoke a massive crisis in our lives wherein we would finally, humbly throw ourselves upon God's mercy. The law was not meant as a pathway for us to justify ourselves. That reverses the direction. Rather, the law is designed to bring us to the end of ourselves. That is the great problem of my life and your life and our world. It's that we insist on seeing ourselves as decent people. And so we either ignore our Savior or so belittle him and his work as to make it meaningless. A wonderful Irish theologian, James Usher, noted that some people like to use the law like Pharaoh used the Israelites. The law without grace is like Pharaoh demanding bricks without straw. The law demands what it cannot give. It demands perfect and entire heartfelt obedience. But critically, that is exactly what we do not have. We can't make bricks without straw. But in Jesus, the law is perfectly obeyed. For Jesus, it is a covenant of works. He obeys it completely, entirely, and eternally. He obeys so wonderfully that his obedience obliterates the power of Adam's sin on our lives. But, and this is the key, we wrongly use the law when we try to take it on ourselves as a covenant of works. Only Jesus can, only Jesus did successfully do that. When we try to be good enough for God, when we imagine that God likes us better when we obey or is fickle and turns from us the minute we struggle, we we lapse back into this mode. We are not under the law in this way as a covenant of works, but rather we are under grace. In verses to come, we'll see that the wandering elders have introduced asceticism back into the Ephesian church. What does that word mean? Asceticism is people giving up things that are not sin in order to win favor with God. People who forbid marriage or food that God has declared holy in the false hope of winning favor or merit. The law can never be used like that. It will never, without Christ, give you peace with God. It was never intended to do that. Maybe you're here today with a question that I often have as well. 
Why does God allow our sin? Have you asked that question before? Why did God give me my particular sin struggles? To be clear, I'm not saying, I'm not calling God the author of sin. I'm simply asking, why did an all-powerful and loving Heavenly Father allow me or you to inherit sin, to inherit my father's bad temper, or my mother's fearful spirit, or my grandfather's lustful heart? Why does he allow that? There are many answers to that question, but none better than this, that you might finally give up on yourself and run to Christ. I love the language of Westminster Confession Chapter 19, when it says this, the right use of the law, the lawful use of the law, does sweetly comply with the gospel. Does sweetly comply with the gospel. So in those desperate moments this week, when you are asking, why can't I just stop being like this? I want you to stop and remember that God's law in that moment is doing its job. It's revealing God's holiness. It's exposing your heart. Paul glories in the law when he says, I would never have really known sin. I would have never really, really known sin if it had not been for the law. You see, in that moment of despair, and I know you're going to have it this week, the law is doing its job. It's doing what God designed it to do. It wasn't supposed to promote speculation and ear tickling. That's the problem in Ephesus. No, it was always meant to create a crisis, a day-to-day, moment-by-moment crisis, one of conviction and desperation. So this week, as it is pressing on you, in that very moment, won't you surrender to its sweet work? Don't abuse it by fighting it, ignoring it, or trying to establish your righteousness with it. Rather, surrender to its power. Let it drive you to Christ. Then you see it will have done its great work to make and perpetuate a continual war against the pride of self and to drive us ever deeper into the arms of our beloved. That's what your life and my life are all about. Leaving myself so that I can more fully be in him through him and to him, forever and ever. Amen. And this is what God's law does for us. This is its sweet gospel work. Let's pray. Father, we say with the psalmist this morning how we love your law. It is our meditation day and night. In it is revealed your perfect holiness, goodness, justice, and truth. In it is revealed our desperate condition, our need of a Savior, our need of the help of the Holy Spirit, moment by moment and hour by hour. In it is revealed our need of worship, what we're doing right now, our need of preaching, our need of fellowship with believers. It is all revealed in the moment the law presses upon our heart and shows us our weakness. May it do its sweet work in us. May it make Christ our vision revealing him to us in new ways, and drive us, Father, by your law in straight paths to your Son, our Savior. Help us even this week to forsake ourselves and to cling to him through your law. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.